Those of you that have not been here before or have only been here a few times won't, maybe don't know that we've been studying for the last couple of years the book of Galatians. And this week we come to Galatians chapter 6, uh, beginning with verse 11. Could you turn it down just a little? It's ringing, please. Um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Um, we're going to read through to the end of the book of Galatians, if you can believe it. And uh, so uh, join me. The title of this sermon is So That They May Boast in Your Flesh. Galatians chapter 6, beginning with verse 11. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, you know that earlier, um, the Apostle Paul has been in a great doctrinal controversy in the book of Galatians with a group that we call the Judaizers, which... Uh, is really the people who um, are trying to turn everybody into Jews. And uh, he has been arguing with them as they've tried to infiltrate the church in Galatia that he loves, and they've tried to turn the Galatians away from the true doctrine that we're not saved because we keep the Old Testament law, we're not saved because we uh, keep the Old Testament sacraments, uh, we're not saved because uh, those of us who are Gentiles are circumcised, um, but we're saved by grace through faith. Um, but then he takes a bit of a, a side turn for a while, and it's not a side turn. I mean, it's very much to the point. But in chapters 5 and 6, he begins to engage in instructions about how they're supposed to live together and how they are supposed to live before God. So he leaves the controversy behind a little bit. He goes into, you know... Um, Make sure that you live in a way that is honoring to God. Run well. Uh, don't let the leaven mess up the whole loaf of, do of dough. Um, he, he talks about uh, freedom and the nature of freedom. And he says you shouldn't use the freedom to bite and devour one another and to consume one another, but rather to walk by the Spirit and not carry out the deeds of the flesh. And he goes through the deeds of the flesh, lists them, and he goes through the fruit of the Spirit and he lists them. And he says, let's not be boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And that's how chapter 5 ends. And then he goes into church uh, exhortation and correction and discipline and says that when we live together as a church, when we fall into sin, um, that those who are spiritual have an obligation to go next to somebody who's fallen into sin and in gentleness to exhort him, correct him, rebuke him, bring them back onto the straight and narrow path. 
Um, then he says, you know, don't be proud about it if you're doing it, and don't be too proud to accept the rebuke. Examine your own work, verse 5. Each one will bear his own load. Uh, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. The universe is set up in a way that's orderly, that's just, that's true. And uh, in the universe, God is always truthful. We get what we sow. We reap what we sow. Not just the farmers, but you and I in the character of our lives. And then he says, uh, share with the people that teach you the word, all good things. And then we hit verse 11. Now, I used this in the first service, and maybe it'll go over better in the second service. But there was a guy in Wheaton who the talk was when I was a young boy that uh, this guy had worked at the University of Chicago being a brilliant physicist and then had gone kerplooey. All right. And uh, he used to walk down the streets of Wheaton. You'd see him out at all times of the day and night. And the odd thing about him was he always walked like he had a purpose. He'd have his hands behind his back, and he'd, he'd walk. And, he, and never anybody with him, and he was always going somewhere. But you'd see him at the library reading the paper or something like that. So you all knew he didn't really have anything to do. All right. But he walked with a purpose. But the thing I remember about him that's become a metaphor in our family is this. He'd walk along. You see him walking along very fast and watch what I do. I got to watch out how much space I have. He'd go. And then he'd keep walking. Thank you. The first service is still asleep. (laughs) And so that's a metaphor in our family. For when somebody does something that does not compute, you know, the black screen of death, you know, the sad Mac, you know, the computer fries, all right? And I look at this verse as being the Apostle Paul going, where did that come from? You know, what, what, what thought does this man have in his mind that causes him to all of a sudden stop and go, See what with large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. (laughs) Where did that come from? Well, there are a couple of things that could explain it. Some people have said that the reason Paul talks about writing in big letters here is that he was halfway blind. If you ever watch Esther during our services, she's got her bulletin in a larger font And she has it up like this because she's legally blind. And so the Apostle Paul normally used a stenographer, a secretary, to write his letters. He didn't write them himself. And we know this from a number of different texts. For instance, uh, if you have your Bibles, um, look at uh, 1 Corinthians 16.21, where you'll find him writing, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Well, why would he say that unless what preceded it had not been in his own hand? And then in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting, what? With my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. It's kind of cute, isn't it? This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is how I write. So apparently he had the habit, when he used a stenographer, a secretary, when he'd get to the end of the letter, he'd take up the pen himself, and he'd show his distinctive mark. Okay, and he'd sign with that. And that was the way you knew it was legit. That was the way it's like the end of a contract where the lawyers put in all the boilerplate. 
But then at the bottom, there's a line, please sign here. This is my own John Hancock, all right? And then in Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment, grace be with you. So it's very personal. This is where the Apostle Paul makes it clear that even though a secretary has done the rest of the letter, that secretary has only worked at his own command, and everything that secretary has written is something he intended to be written. Now, why does this matter? Well, first of all, it matters because a lot of scholars for many years have tried to make the case that much of the New Testament was written by men who simply pointed at an apostle and said, well, I was his disciple, and, 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 and so when I write, I'm, I claim his name, but, but really, it's me. All right. My father-in-law resigned from the board of Fuller Theological Seminary over this issue in, in, the, in the letters to Peter. I have a fascinating letter where the president of Fuller, David Hubbard at the time, uh, goes on in, 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 in arguing with my father-in-law about why this is not a big deal, that they have professors there that don't believe that Peter wrote Peter. All right. And he uses things like talking about how uh, Jack Rogers is, is a godly man and has a very high view of Scripture, even though he doesn't hold to inerrancy and even though they have... Men like Paul Jewett, and he names these names who, um, again, Paul Jewett argues that Paul said that wives should submit to their husbands, but that Paul was wrong. You know, that when Paul says Adam was created first, then he, Paul was wrong. And he uses these as illustrations saying really nothing is at stake with the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, these men have very high views of Scripture, even though they have little idiosyncrasies here and here and here. Uh, really, if you look at them, they're godly. They have good character. These are men who we're going to stand behind. So, you know, in other words, can chill out. You know, don't be so uptight about who actually wrote which particular book? Now, what's interesting? Well, does anybody here know? Does anybody here know anything about Jack Rogers today? Anybody? Okay, I do. Jack Rogers left Fuller Seminary and went to teach and then eventually became the president of San Francisco Theological Seminary which was in my old denomination, the PCUSA. And he still had a little bit of a patina, a little bit of a sort of tint of evangelical to him. Then he went to San Francisco Seminary, and while he was there, he ran to be moderator of the General Assembly, the national leader of the Presbyterian Church USA. And while he was moderator, he began to modulate on the issue of homosexuality. Until now, Jack Rogers has issued a book basically endorsing homosexuality. Now, what about the other man he cited, Paul Jewett? Well, his book, Man is Male and Female, is the Magna Carta of the feminist movement in the church today. We just had the men in the pastor's college of this church read it. That's how good it is. How awful, awfully good, goodly, awfully it is. In other words, if you're going to hit your head against that heresy, that's the book to read, to understand the heresy. Now, what's my point in bringing these two men up? Well, my point is to say it does matter whether the Apostle Paul actually wrote these letters. It does matter 
This is not an insignificant thing. If Paul says, listen, I'm picking up my pen here and I'm writing in my own hand, the clear implication of that is that what came before was also by his hand. Do you understand that? Otherwise, it makes no sense to say, look, I'm picking up, because that would be duplicitous. It would be deceitful for anybody who was a disciple and, you know, 200 miles away writing the letter. Do you understand that? You know, if Taylor takes my checkbook and a check down to the mall into Dick's, right, and he goes to buy a new pair of soccer shoes, right, and he signs my name, and they say to him, wait, you're not old enough to have a checkbook and sign my name. And he says, well, this is my dad. And and I assure you, I know him inside and out. The clerk's going to look at him and say, get out of here, you runt. (laughs) So when the Apostle Paul picks up his pen to say, look with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand, we have a basic issue here of the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. That's what's going on here. This is my John Hancock. This is coming from me. Now, why does it matter? You know, why couldn't it have been just a disciple? Because he's saying it's him. That's why. And if you make a claim and you're lying then all of Scripture is up from grass. Can't you understand why somebody who says that the, that the letters of Peter are not written by Peter can also say that the command of God that, that sodomy is an abomination to God would easily throw that out too, and where it says that wives are submit to their husbands, you throw that out. I mean, come on. If we're the authority over Scripture, then we're the authority over Scripture. If we can judge who writes what based on our own inclinations and smart talk rather than what the text says, then Scripture doesn't exist because by definition, Scripture, as the Holy Bible has been given to us, is not inspired by men but rather by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of old wrote as they were theopneustos, inspired, God-breathed by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says about itself. No text of Scripture came about, a man, about by a man's will, but rather holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Moved by the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit moved a man to claim that he was now taking up a pen, writing in large letters, proving that what came before was him, and now this is especially from him, and the Holy Spirit moved him to write that, and it was a lie, the Bible is not God's Word. And so you don't have to worry about feminism because it's not a heresy. It's just a bunch of muddle-headed, stupid men who are on an ego trip and the world will be done with them soon and then we'll all breathe easier. And you don't have to worry about, you know, things like oneness Pentecostalism because the Trinity is obviously some Platonic, like some Socratic, some like Greek, some, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's stupid, you know? Jesus alone, that's all you need. And, and what about the Roman Catholic? Well, the Roman Catholic Church, we don't need to worry about that because all roads lead to Rome, I mean to heaven. Um, okay? You see, in other words, can't we all get along? And isn't that what it always comes back to? Can't we all get along? Isn't that what our goal is? That's the most sophisticated statement of all the ideologies of the Western world today. Can't we all get along? 
Now, what do I think about Paul saying, see what with large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. If you look back earlier in the book of Galatians, um, what you'll find is that he says in verse 15 of chapter 4, where then is that sense of blessing you had? He's speaking intimately to the Galatians, and he says, for I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. And some people think that the thorn in his flesh He talks about a thorn in his flesh that God sends to him that he prayed three times that God would take away. And he says that this thorn in the flesh is given to him for his humiliation so that he has to be dependent on God. If you have a thorn in the flesh, that's good. We all do. And it's it's excellent. Um, Because it, it helps to keep us humble or to make us humble or to humiliate us. Um... Some people have argued that his thorn in the flesh is that he's blind. And they point to this verse I just read and they say, see, he he uses as an incidental reference that they'd pluck out their eyes. That must mean that everybody knows that he wishes he had other people's eyes. All right. And so that must be why he's picking up the pen uh, and writing in large letters, because he is hard uh, of vision. His vision is bad. And so he has to write in large letters because his vision is so bad. All right. Is that what it is? I I don't think so. I think the reason he picks up the pen and writes in large letters is the same reason that some people write in all caps when they send you an email message. They're shouting. And if you ever want to irritate me, send me something criticizing me or something I've written and send it in all caps. (laughs) It just irritates me. Really, really, really irritates me. How would you like it if I preached all the time like that? really irritates me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm shouting, and that's what writing in all caps on the Internet is. It's shouting. Um, so what I really think is Paul's shouting here. Paul is shouting. Now, you might disagree. You might say, no, no, it's that he's hard. he doesn't have good, good vision. I say it's the same difference. If, if the Apostle Paul picks up his pen to write himself here, then he's shouting. I mean, why would he pick up his pen right there to write? Because he wants to make his point very intensely. So whether it's because he he doesn't have good vision or because he's shouting, it's the equivalent of like all caps, bold, italics, and some of you, a bane on you, some of you would even use underlining. I do care about design, you can tell. (laughs) So whether he's doing it because he can't see or whether he's doing it because he wants to shout at them, it amounts to the same thing. This is Paul's way of saying at this time, now listen to me, I really mean it. Jesus would say what? Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you. Okay? Now, what is it that he says? Now, this is very, very interesting. What is it that he says? Well, what he says is, verse 12, those who desire, and if I were to do it the way I think he's doing it, it would be like this. He was giving it orally. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so they will not be persecuted for the cause and the cross of Christ. 
Now, can you understand why the Apostle Paul at this time is yelling? Now, here's what I think is interesting. If he had done this, if he had said, listen to this. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's okay with this, isn't it? I'm going to boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't at that point that he picked up his pen to yell at us, was it? Huh? Mm -mm. And you know what's coming. It's the theme that you have to hear constantly to inoculate you against the perversion of the world you live in. Which is, an evangelical, which means a Bible-believing Christian, always says God's no as well as his yes. You want to know whether you're dealing with somebody who's a Bible-believing Christian? Find out whether no and yes have equal emphases. Because in a culture where all that matters is getting along with each other, can't we all get along? The way to get along with each other is to remove all distinct marks, to, to remove all differentiation, to, to be a leveler. Everything's at the same level. And, and the way you do that is by never saying no to anything, but just saying a cosmic yes. You know, yes. Doesn't that feel good? How about this? No. It jangles our ears, doesn't it? Huh? Especially if a preacher does it. Now, listen carefully. From the time you went into kindergarten, you have been taught that you are never ever to make a comment about the motivation of somebody you're having an argument with. You are never to claim to know the motives of the people that you are arguing with. That is a big no-no. And if you do it, and you're talking to a philosopher, he'll tell you that you have just committed the ad hominem fallacy. That you have turned from making the argument against the point to making the argument against the man. Alright? What does the Apostle Paul do here in the text of Holy Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What does he do? Look at it. Look at it. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that... Now, is that an argument of purpose? Motivation? Deeper meaning? Character? You bet. So that what? They will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. The Apostle Paul ends his letter of warning against the Judaizers by accusing them of bad motives. Three, four of them actually. First, that they are trying to make a good showing in the flesh, which is another way of saying that they're man-pleasing and that they're trying to make themselves look good. Now, any of you try to make yourselves look good? Hey, 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 hey. Hey, dudes, back in the corner. You ever try to make yourself look good? Huh? Huh? How about the way you wear your hair? Seth? Huh? Huh? Don't worry, he's my son's friend. I can talk to him. How about the way your phone rings? <laughs> you choose that carefully? You have Bach? 
No. So who do you have? Brick house. Who? Brick house? Okay. 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 And and does that make you look good? I mean, not in church, but at other times. <laughs> yeah, when she walks around the ghetto, she's welcome. Okay, come on, guys. This isn't you, right? You don't try to make yourself look good, right? The Apostle Paul says that those that are trying to get the Jews to be, or the Gentiles in Galatia to be circumcised are trying to look good. That's their motivation. That's what he's saying. What else does he say? Second, that they're seeking to avoid the persecution for the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to get into that one more in a couple weeks' time. But that's pretty nasty because what did Jesus say? Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. In other words, if they're trying to avoid the cross, the persecution of the cross, are they believers? Are they Christians? Is their faith sincere? Okay. Then third. He says what? I can find it. I got confused. The third thing he says, well, I have to give. The cross of Christ, and then verse 13, they don't even keep the law themselves. What's that? Hypocrisy. They tell you to keep the law by getting circumcised, and then they're hypocrites because they don't even keep it themselves. And then fourth, they desire to have you circumcised so they may boast in your flesh. In other words, you're a scalp, but not a scalp, a foreskin. They want to brag about how many, what does he say? He says flesh. Come on, people. This isn't hypothetical. Think of the Indians collecting their scalps. So what does he say? He says, number one about them. They're man-pleasers trying to look good. Number two, they don't want to be persecuted for the cross. Number three, they're hypocrites because they don't keep the law themselves. And number four, they want to make your foreskins their boast. They want to count numbers. All right? They want to brag about their numbers. Now, let me ask you this. Do you choose your leaders on the basis of what their motivations are? Do you judge your pastors and your elders? Do you judge what schools you go to, who your professors are? Do you have any standard for the character of the people that are dispensing doctrine and knowledge to you? Do you have any standard for their character? You know, we really don't today because the model for churches is a place where all you ever know about the guy is that he's up in front and that he speaks to you, but you never know him personally, you know. And it's so ironic if you think about it because we actually think that's good because then we don't have to get messed up with mud and, and dirt and character and motivation and, and, and fruit and stuff like that. And if he falls, that's okay. I didn't know him anyhow. And we can hire another preacher. Remember when uh, what's-his-name fell? The, 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 the executive pastor immediately issued a statement to the press, and he said this. He said, don't worry. 
by the end of December, we'll have another senior pastor for this church, and we are going to be smart about it. That was what he actually said as soon as Ted Haggard fell. Don't worry, we'll have somebody back in milking the cows, and we'll be smart about it. When uh, a woman in our church came to live in our home, after going through a rough divorce, her husband left her uh, and then divorced her. And she came to live in our house. You know what I was all worried about? Very worried about. I was very worried that my life and the way I treated my children and my wife would be a scandal to her and cause her to lose all hope in Jesus Christ. Can you see why a pastor would be motivated never to have anybody live in his house and to use hairspray on his hair and not to have the practice of hospitality? Do you understand this? You understand what's at stake in churches where you don't know the pastor and where you're anonymous. What's at stake is you never have to think about the issue of motivation. And then you can turn it into a principle. And you can say, well, we shouldn't have ad hominem attacks. So then my, my question to you is, why does the Apostle Paul do it then? What are we supposed to learn from the Apostle Paul? Just sort of the hypothetical doctrinal truth stuff, but nothing of the practice of being a shepherd? Father's not supposed to learn about how you're supposed to be fathers from looking at how Paul was a father? Huh? I'm having to sort of try to get your attention back here. In other words, when Jesus attacks people for their motivation and uses the scalpel skillfully to get into their hearts, yet one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It's okay because it's Jesus. He can talk about motivation and heart, right? But if a pastor does this, what do you say to him? What you say to the pastor is you're meddling. You know, it's not your job to convict us of sin. You know, don't talk about my character. You can't see my heart. You don't know whether or not I have good or bad motives. Back off, dude. If you have some objective truth to dispense to me, like out of a bubblegum machine, I'll give you my quarter. You give me your bubblegum. But don't tell me what color I like or why. You know? You don't know me. You know something? I'm sorry, but I'm keeping going, David. Today's a zoo. Um, and I don't know what to do. I think I'm going to have to stop. Um, I think I'll probably, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm not going to be preaching next week. Otherwise, I, this would be easy decision. But I guess uh, let, me, let, me, let me try to end with a couple of, uh, of comments. Um, you cannot grow spiritually and you cannot choose your church. And the reason I emphasize this so constantly is a quarter of you leave every year. All right? You cannot submit to churches where they are not going to speak to you about your character. Just forget about what's going on. All right? Look at me. All right? Everybody forget what's going on. You have to be able to discern 
the motivation and the character of other men's hearts test the fruit of their ministry. You have to look at their relationship with their daughters. If they teach you father rule, look at how they are with their daughters. Look at how they are with their wives. That's important. All right? You have to look at your own motivation. You have to say, am I a feminist because I am a rebel against authority? And that works for both men and women. Many men are feminists because they hate authority, and it goes across sex lines, you know. You have to ask yourself, are you a feminist? Because I'm convinced of this, that many men are feminists because what they want is they want to be nice to women. They have too much of a desire to please the fairer sex. And the, and, the, and the perverse thing is they end up not pleasing them. They end up, many of them, getting spit out of the mouths of their wives because their wives don't respect them. It's like, ding dong. <laughs> you know, it's so logical. And, and see, right away you're uptight about me making that point. Well, how do you know the hearts of feminists? You know, you don't know what makes them tick. You know, you can't tell me about their motivation. And I tell you, I've known many feminists, many who have doctorates they want too much to be nice guys they want to look good and being a feminist is how you look good today people are you ignorant of that i mean isn't that like a no-brainer today you know here's an idea i think i'll get up and well i shouldn't do that all right it's popular it's popular it sells and if you're not a feminist at least just shut up about it and that's what every evangelical pastor does. Every single one of them. Privately, they'll tell you that they believe in the biblical doctrine of father rule. They'll never preach it from the pulpit. And if they do, it'll be, well, took care of that one for the year, like abortion. <laughs> took care of that one for the year, you know. You guys, that's not what a faithful shepherd does. A faithful shepherd finds the breach in the wall and goes and stands there and just keeps pointing to it. There! There's a breach. There's a breach. There's a breach. Until everybody gets so sick of them. Remember, you remember Winston Churchill? <laughs> you know, in a time of peace, he was nasty and no one liked him. War came all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, he was right. There's a breach. There's a breach. There's a breach. You know. All right. So you have to think about your own motivation in your own doctrine. Also, why do you hold to the doctrine that you hold to? What is your motivation to hold to false doctrine. Do you understand that? All of us have the sins that we're so precious with, protecting them tenderly, you know, that causes us to have bad doctrine. Truth is in order to goodness. You know, what we do and what we believe go together. If you believe something that's wrong, what you do will be wrong. If you do something that's wrong, what you believe will be wrong. Truth is in order to goodness. Okay? This is why a father in our church has a daughter who wanted to wear something this week that was, like, dark. And the father said, honey, I love you, but you may not wear something that's dark. Truth is an order to goodness. Can you understand how your dress will lead your doctrine? Huh? Huh? Can you understand how your doctrine will lead your dress? <laughs> All right. 
And so here's the point. The Apostle Paul's a faithful shepherd. The Apostle Paul doesn't just dispense objective intellectual doctrinal truth. The Apostle Paul goes for the jugular, and he says that this is why they're doing it. These men want to please one another. They want to be man-pleasers. These men are hypocrites. These men are only trying to escape the shame of the cross, and these men are going to brag when you cut your skin. They're going to make your skin their bragging rights. And the last one is so obvious. You go into any meeting of pastors, what's the first question that's asked always when pastors get together? Bam! What is it? Bam! Bam! Well, what do you run on a Sunday morning? You know, like it's a herd of cattle. What do you run? Well, I don't run too many. (laughs) Just a little group. But I'm still an important man. I'm chairman of the Ministerial Relations Committee. And I have books. And some very important people, including doctors, come to my church. We're all braggarts. And the only question is what we brag about. Every single one of us is a braggart. Every single one of us. Even those of you that don't think you are. You're a braggart. And the only thing we're supposed to brag about is what? Hmm? The cross. Did you know in Roman society they weren't even allowed to utter the word cross? No one ever said the word cross. Did you know that? You know why? It was so terribly shameful. So they'd use a circumlocution something that you sort of go around the edge and don't get at the nail and they'd talk about something like uh, the uh, the humiliating tree thing that's how they'd refer to the cross isn't that something so brothers and sisters look at motivation check the tree by its fruit check your own motivation Don't be upset if you have an elder that's sweet enough and kind enough and loves you enough to to talk to you about your motivation. Uh, don't, Don't get angry if your wife does it. That's what she's paid to do. All right. Let's pray.